and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Kaylee Costello. Our guest today is Ed McLaughlin, the President and Chief Technology Officer of MasterCard. Ed has been with MasterCard since 2005. Prior to that, Ed was the co-founder and CEO of Paytrust, an online payments platform. In today's episode, we discuss how emerging technologies such as quantum and AI are impacting payments, how MasterCard approaches partnering and co-creating products with fintechs, the industry outlook for payments, and much more. Hi, welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. Hi, great to be here. Excited to have you on. To start with, can you tell us a bit about yourself and how you ended up in fintech? Certainly. So Ed McLaughlin, Wharton graduate, undergrad. And when I came out of university, actually, I went straight into technology startup at the time, pre-fintech. Worked a lot with uh, package software, data modeling tools, and things of that nature. And then first wave internet back in 1998. I started an online bill payment company. Now, we called it eFinance at the time, and kind of evolved into fintech from there. But I really have been involved in this merger of finance and technology really, really from the start. And uh, joined MasterCard, actually, in 2005 as we were getting ready for our IPO. And been here ever since, working closely with our fintech partners. So one of the things that we wanted to talk about today was how emerging technologies are impacting payments and how you've helped to accelerate MasterCard's tech capabilities. Firstly, to set the scene a bit, can you give us a brief overview of how payment systems and infrastructure have evolved over time and the current state of the industry? That's a really broad sweep. So I'll start all the way back is, you know, we came out of a world dominated by cash. And I like pointing that out because if you think about what a ridiculous thing it is, if you proposed cash today, people would say it's ludicrous. We just put up with it because we were used to it. And out of that sort of very physical cash check world, MasterCard started completely offline. I don't know if you had ever remembered there was imprinters, we used to call them zip zop machines or knuckle busters. And the whole idea was a very, very physical thing. And it was really in the early 70s that we started putting machine readable mag stripes on the charge plates. We built the first electronic network to tie all of that together. And that was really a, a marvel for its time. And because of the value that has continued to evolve, you saw more and more payments start to shift. It started in the physical world at dedicated terminals connected to proprietary networks. And I think the next big accelerant was really in the mid-90s with the internet connectivity. And then you could fully move to things like e-commerce. Consumers could have much easier digital access. Next big acceleration was mobile because suddenly you could be online all the time and being online was always with you. And we had a whole new wave of innovation, a whole new set of capabilities that came out around that to you get to where we are today where digital is the dominant mode of transacting. And if you think of what payments, if you think of what cash really always was, it was just the movement of information. And we've really been able to use technology, connectivity, and these transitions in consumers' behavior to fundamentally change to how commerce happens. And how has MasterCard's offering and focus areas evolved, particularly over the last five to 10 years? I would say maybe a decade ago, people would confuse us with the actual card itself. You know, it's even in the name. And I remember I would have to explain to people, you know, no one thought Facebook was a book either. You know, sometimes it's just where you're coming from, metaphor people that people can get. So we saw a progressive shift from people interacting physically to first, again, e-commerce, things coming online, people buying that way, a shift from buying individual items to subscription services, you think of like a Spotify 
a shift from maybe owning a car to going to an Uber. So this much more on-demand, much more flexible way of paying for that. So our systems have always adapted along with it. So I think some of the biggest things that have come into the network is, first of all, the ongoing enhancements of security. If you've noticed the, you know, the chip that's on the card to provide encryption of all transaction and payments, when we moved into mobile devices like Apple Pay or Google Pay, we use the chips in, the, in, in, the, in your phone to offer similar encryption capabilities. So a lot of technology went securing the payment systems to fighting fraud. We've d applied incredible AI capabilities and techniques to help keep the system safe for everyone who's using it and encryption techniques to help make sure that all the information is protected within it. And then it's what we called contextual commerce. So we would continue to extend into all the new things that you would want to do. So you know anywhere you wanted to use your MasterCard, you could. So getting it into your smartphone, making sure we're doing things with Mercedes to make sure it's embedded in your car. So a digital interface or API first is really the way that we've structured the network. So you can get instant access completely digitally to all of the accounts that you have on a MasterCard. And that's just been a great business for us. And it's continued to expand everywhere that people can use, can use their card, even when it's not a card. And we'd love to deep dive into some of the sort of tech capabilities and opportunities to understand more about what MasterCard is doing in this space and how these opportunities will shape the industry. So to start with, we'd love to talk about quantum technologies in contactless card payments. I think firstly, can you break down what we actually mean when we're saying quantum technologies? Well, yeah. And, and I think there's two really big sides of quantum, one of which is you can use it to solve very complex problems that you can't solve with classical compute. Now, the implication with that is a lot of the encryption security we use, not just for payments, but really for just about everything online, is usually based on solving very, very hard math problems. Prime numbering factoring or RSA, if you've heard it being the, the perfect example. It turns out the very technique that makes it so hard to solve with classical computers, quantum computers are really, really good at. And there's a, a model, it's called Shor's algorithm, again, if you're playing along, which will allow you to solve that hard problem quite easily if you get a sufficiently capable quantum computer. So that becomes sort of an existential threat of, you know, how do you ensure you can stay encrypted when the very thing the encryption is based on this hard problem goes away. So there's two things we're doing there, one of which is, and the National Institute of Technology in the U.S. has put some very, very good work out on this. There's different algorithms you can use that are much more quantum resistant. So we're looking at the underlying way that we're encrypting all of the, the, the payment flows and technology to not depend on something that quantum computers can do really easily, but move to something which is complex in a different way. The other thing, though, is the advantages that quantum can do, because it's doing the same thing. You're solving really complex and hard problems. So things that you, we've already seen in, for example, looking at medical discoveries through proteins or the ability to, to protect things using quantum entanglement or using the nature of quantum computing is really helpful. And I'll give you one example for that. We piloted a, a technique called quantum key distribution, where one of the hardest things we have is moving the secrets around. And if you want to make sure that you're impervious to a calculator, a mathematical attack, if you can move a true random secret around, there's nothing to be solved for. There's, there's no risk there. 
So we used basically quantum entanglement to assure secure delivery of keys to multiple locations, can use that to sign the transaction so we're sure it hasn't been observed or changed in any way. So we did a pilot with a number of our partners, uh, Verizon, Cisco, and a few others, and we actually demonstrated that we could use quantum entanglement or quantum secure communication to move one-time keys about the system. So again, while it creates an attack vector, it also creates a lot of opportunity with advanced compute and even better ways to securing the systems than we have today. I think I'll end on this one. The key to quantum is when you do what we do, you have to say there's something which could have a really, really big impact that's reasonably within your planning horizon. So you need to start working on addressing it now. So if and when it happens, you're already ready for it. And another use case that I'd heard that MasterCard was looking into for quantum computing was in the sort of loyalty and reward space. Can you tell us about what MasterCard is doing and what kind of opportunities there are here? Yeah, exactly. So that's one of the the business opportunities of quantum being able to solve complex problems in, in ways you might not have been able to before. So just like fighting fraud is trying to find the things that look normal but you're unlikely to do for something like loyalty, we're trying to find the things which could be most appealing to you. So you're dealing with a huge sort of problem space and set. I want to rapidly come to a conclusion around that. So we're working with a company called D-Wave. We have partnerships with a, a number of other companies in the quantum space where we're modeling out how you could use a different type of compute technique to solve problems we've always had in new and novel ways. And so when you look at, I would say, detecting and fighting fraud, you know, getting better affinity and loyalty, multivariant complex problems, there's real opportunities in quantum computing. So it goes back to what I said earlier is we want to be experimenting with it now to if and when the cost curves make it accessible on a retail basis for what we want to do. We already understand the models and what it's there. And we do a lot of that. If you're a MasterCard, not necessarily engaged in, in primary or pure research, but we're extremely active in applied research. So quantum key distribution, quantum analytics for things like our loyalty programs. We've long been leading in artificial intelligence and AI for the ways, again, we fight fraud and protect the network. So we're constantly saying, is there a way out there to do what we do better and to make sure that we're constantly trialing or experimenting with those things? I'd also love to hear more about how you're using AI and perhaps generative AI at MasterCard. I know you mentioned fraud losses. Is this the main thing that you're using AI for? And what does this look like? Yeah. So let me talk about AI in general, because this is something, again, it's been a dozen years and, and we've long been a leader in AI. I think Forbes magazine gave us their innovation of the year in 2019 for our decisioning platform, our AI-based engine that we've put into the network. So what we've always used it for is one, fraud, you have a very good signal. We know whether or not there's fraud on the transactions. And we have the ability to see a massive data set flowing through the network. So through machine learning backward propagation techniques, we have the ability to get a really good view of what the patterns are there for. So then we were able to do a couple amazing things. One of which is we call it safety net, is we can see when it looks like an account's been compromised and there's a runaway set of transactions. And before a human could even intervene, we can cut that off. So you can almost imagine a circuit breaker we've put into the network that's constantly looking at every transaction and can react to it immediately. And that protects you. It protects anyone away from it. So we've always said, if you have a MasterCard, you have zero liability for any fraud that happens on that card. We stand behind it. We stand behind you. 
these are the techniques we put in place to allow us to, to, to back that promise up. So safety net's been a great one for us. The other thing is just looking for suspicious transactions or fraudulent transactions themselves. And the technology that used to be used was very rules-based. You'd have analysts look at a whole lot of information, come up on a rule, and you put it in the system. It didn't react quickly to what fraudsters were doing. It generated a whole lot of false positives. So when we got out of trying to write rules and figure it out and actually use machine learning and the AI algorithms in the system itself, we, we found two big things. One is we stopped three times more fraud, which was amazing. But we actually let six times more good transactions go through because we didn't have any false positives. And that generated a lot more business. It was great for consumers because you're trying to do it and it actually is legitimate and we're letting it happen for you. So it was transformative to our business when we use these sophisticated AI techniques inside the network. So now when you look at things like generative AI, it gives us a new tool. We have about 13, not about, we have 13 different AI engines we're running right now in the network. If you think of this as the 14th, it's new techniques to solve different problems. So one, it, it, it helps us in the core of our business, which is the safety, security, the network. And it's been transformative there. There's literally tens of billions of dollars of fraud that we're stopping you know, with these techniques. The other thing which I'm really excited about is if you look at what we're doing with generative AI and the tools there, this is Microsoft calls them Copilot. It really helps people in the work they're doing providing an assistance. So while a lot of the AI techniques and machine learning we used is great with structured data, structured information, this gives us a whole new set of tools for unstructured data, which is really where humans live and work, not, not machines. So we're doing things like taking really complex elements of our rules and documentation and everything else and doing it as an overlay to help our human agents help our customers better. We've seen great advantages in things like coding, where our engineers can get code assist as they go through that to not write the code for them. I actually think that's a little overplayed, but to be much more effective, much more productive in the work they're already doing. And we really see that, like I said, co-pilot or this idea that you have greater assistance for what the humans are doing, this human-machine interaction I think it's the key to the advantages we're seeing with generative AI, and that's why everyone's so excited about it right now. Are there any other opportunities for AI or generative AI that you haven't tried yet that you're thinking about or looking to for the future? Well, yeah. I, I think anytime you have general purpose technology, you're always learning and understanding, one, what it's really good for, and two, what existing techniques are, are actually better at. I'll go back maybe a decade ago again with blockchain. And I used to joke everyone tried to end every conversation, every sentence with on the blockchain. And you're like, well, you just need a database for that. And here's what's unique and different about it. I think that's really the state we are with generative AI. You know, we've seen uh, one caution. We've seen applications where people have data sets that are too small and you just get in a hallucination engine. You know, you really need a massive amount of information for it to be effective. Uh, at the same time, I think there's huge unexplored areas because We've always had trouble, I think, in data processing or in systems dealing with unstructured information. So the way that we can now combine things like images, things like patterns, things like text itself in new and novel ways, I think we're just beginning to explore how that can really be brought together and, and truly generate things at a scale that wasn't there before. The other element is the, the generative aspect of it, the idea that the machines can learn from themselves and actually test against each other. If you look at the famous example with AlphaGo, 
solving the, the, the Go problem. After it got through the rules and actually started playing against itself, that's when it got the huge advantages. So we actually think AI training AI ots or bots fighting bots, there's going to be really interesting advances when we actually use the systems to, to, to support itself. Absolutely. And one thing you touched on before was around like cybersecurity and keeping the network resilient. I'd love to hear a bit more about how you think about this, particularly when you're trying to protect the network during high volume periods, such as, for example, Black Friday. Yeah. And, you know, one of the great things about MasterCard is we, we truly do power economy, running national critical infrastructure in countries around the world. So the resilience of our network and the scale of the network is, is, is it great set of challenges to have. And if you think about it, we have over 3 billion accounts on the network that people need every day to do what they have to do. And it's an obligation we think about a lot. We really do. And so first you start with resiliency and we have multiple layers of redundancy and resiliency built into the network. So we've had edge decisioning for a long time where you know, even if the whole network goes down, we could still have a resilience and, and, and have decisioning happening on the edge. We'll stand in. So if network counterparties aren't there, if a, if a bank isn't there, we can actually stand in and make decisions on their behalf. So again, you as the consumer can go forward for that. And then the way you design multiple redundancies within the network backbone itself. So our whole point is to make sure that, that we have that availability. And you know what? If you have a MasterCard, right, we're always there for you and, and you have that availability. And that's something when I talk to people about, you know, as an engineer, you know, what excites you as a business person? What's the things that you find important? And for us, doing these things that everyone depends on and making sure we're there for them. You know, we do this because it's important. You really feel it. And it's a vibe we have across, across the organization for that. So you, you asked about security. And there's two big categories I'd say there, right? One, the availability, resiliency, you just build in. That's how you run the system. We're also very conscious of attacks on the system and then attacks run through the system. And on the system is where someone would disrupt. And you have to think a lot about things like nation state actors. We're already seeing a new generation of warfare, which is asymmetrical, where they look at transit systems, healthcare systems, power grids, payment systems, right? So we do need to really work to protect ourselves against progressively sophisticated attacks. And those are both things you build into the systems. And it's also for all of the, the, the people, all the human actors in, involved, making sure that security stays a highest priority. So one's protecting our systems themselves. The second thing, which we've talked about a lot, is fraud through the system. So again, making sure that the transactions, even if they're flowing fine, aren't used for the wrong purposes. And that's really where we've applied so much research, so much AI to make sure that at the massive scale we have, we're constantly stopping that fraud from coming through the system. So, you know, we'll do 150 billion transactions, you know, in a year. So it, it's, it's amazing. The, the decision management platform that we talked about, our AI engine, has over a trillion parameters in it now. So if you think about a million million, that's the size of scale and scope that we're talking about. So it, it really is inspiring if you're an engineer to say, how do you build, you know, literally a globe-sized unbreakable, massively scaled, really fast system. And that's what we do all day. Definitely a big challenge, yeah. I'd love to talk a bit also about how you sort of approach partnering and co-creating products with fintechs. So you mentioned uh, working with D-Wave in the loyalty reward space. 
Do you have a strategy around partnering with like emerging processes and fintechs to stay relevant as the payments landscape shifts? Yeah, that's actually, I would say partnership has always been the heart of MasterCard because we're a network and in some ways we're one of the original platform companies. We provide a lot of capabilities and service, but we don't hold the funds. We're not the bank. We're not the merchant. We don't sell the goods. So, you know, we've always said that our job is to have a business or a platform where people can build great businesses on top of. And that's been awesome for us. So if you go all the way back to our founding 60-some years ago, we were founded as a bank association. We were founded as a way of people being able to work together. And it's always been the heart and DNA of what we've done. So through the years, you've seen us build and grow through partnership. And fintech has been a essential part of that. And I'm proud to say, if you really think about some of the the big breakthrough innovations that people like to look at, whether it was a Amazon and e-commerce or an Uber and mobility, iTunes and digital media, Netflix. If, if you think about all of those, the monetization engine for them, the way they were able to build those innovations because they had access to the MasterCard network. I think proudly, humbly, we've been in an agreement, an ingredient in just about every one of those digital innovations you see. So when people were shifting their behavior to their smartphones, we worked with Google, we worked with Apple in partnership to bring the best of MasterCard to help design, here's how you can safely and securely use it for payment and craft a great user experience that's delivered through their platforms. For FinTech itself, we have a, we call a FinTech Express program where we work with young companies to show them how they can connect to the MasterCard network to help them thrive and grow and successful. We have uh, launch events we do with them. We've been heavily funding, you know, selective companies that we think are doing particularly interesting things that'll help advance the space. One stat we had is a couple of years ago, I think 90% of the fintechs in the UK were working with MasterCard because we really wanted to do what we could do to help them be successful. Nubank, one of the biggest, I think maybe the biggest fintech in the world coming out of Brazil is a MasterCard exclusive partner from the start because we really invested in their success. So what I love about fintechs is you have this unbelievable unleashing of creativity where people are harnessing new technology and applying it to solve problems that haven't been solved before. So our ability to, with financial inclusion, to reach and serve people we could never reach before, to create new, the phrase we use is contextual commerce to say how in new spaces or new environments that people are exploring, can we make sure that they can bring that to and access the MasterCard network, which helps them build their business, which also means everyone who has a MasterCard gets access to all these great new experiences. So this goes from, from, from the smallest nascent companies with a good idea that we want to make sure it can easily tap into our APIs and our network to working with an Apple for something like Apple Pay. There's a great story that Jim McKelvey, the co-founder of Square, tells about working with MasterCard to actually get Square going at the beginning and the work we did to help them you know, design their service and, and define it in our network. So the amount of creativity, energy, and access we see coming out of the fintech community is just amazing. And it really gets back to the heart of our business. And what I love about digital is this digital combinatory effect where we can bring Amazing capabilities, those three billion plus payment accounts that can all be available to a fintech just by tapping into our network. And whether it's Apple or a couple of kids out of school, it's all part of our partnership model. 
And switching gears a little bit, I'd love to talk about the industry outlook and what's next for MasterCard. So firstly, what do you think the future of payment looks like? Like in particular, I'm curious about how technology will shape the industry going forward, as well as your perspective on the role that crypto and blockchain will play in the future. Yeah, I think I'm contractually obligated to say the future of payments looks like a MasterCard. But just to get back to your question, and and I'm being a little flip on that. One of the things that we talk about a lot is multi-rail or all the different payment types that you want to have as a consumer. And whether you want to, you know, access to a line of credit for something that you can pay down over time, whether you want to use an installment payment, which we have on the network, so you can have a fixed set of payments known for that purchase, whether you're accessing your store of funds, your your deposit account at a bank whether it's a specialty prepaid product, like some of the great things we've done in healthcare with flexible spending accounts and other things, really any way or any type of transaction you want to do. We've done a lot of work in uh, direct account access through things like open banking. So what we firmly believe is you as a consumer are going to want to have easy access to all the types of funds and materials that you want. We've done a lot of work with blockchain technology particularly stablecoin, and we've been working with governments on what's called central bank digital currency or CBDC. And I think that's another great example where we do over 150 currencies on the network today. I'm not so worried about the physical representation of them, and if there's a few more currencies that come out, we can already see how to handle that in. So we've prototyped things like how do you settle in a stablecoin versus a traditional fiat currency and There's a lot of really interesting work that's going on there, but really what drives us is what I said earlier. You know, what are people trying to do? What's the right contextual commerce? What's the best way to do it for you? And then providing that seamless and secure access back to whatever account or funding mechanism we want to use, whether it's dollars in a bank, a line of credit, a crypto store, or whatever makes sense for for that environment. So it really gets back to the core of what we do. It's actually what even the brand is, if you look at the Venn diagram we have, is bringing the the retailer, the merchant, the person you want to do business with, together with the consumer for the, the, the way that can, they can make it happen. So what I think you're going to see is an ongoing array of possible ways that people can make payments and an equal desire of consumers to have someone simplify it, bring it all together for them, and give them the, the safety and trust in the systems that they can use it. I'll give you one example of future payments I really like is we did an announcement with Mercedes for uh, contextual commerce in car and that holy trinity of like parking and tolls and and gasoline or, or electric charging, which we're also doing a lot of now. And it's just a different way to have a, a an easier and better experience. So I think what we're always seeing is people want to extend into new environments and they want to take the things that they have to do all every day and just make it easier to access. And that's what it's going to look like. It, payments will become much, much more an embedded part of many different contexts. When you think about these uses for blockchain and for stable coins, what do you see the consumer facing side of this looking like in the future? Like, how do you see people interacting with each of these? Well, a few things on this. I think what we've seen, and we've got a decade under our belt now, and it's really important to separate up blockchain as a technology which if you can go into an environment where it's hard to establish trust and take all the overhead of running an actual blockchain around it, there's applications there from you know payments in a currency. And much of what we've seen so far is it's really used more as an asset class 
I think if you look at the SEC rulings that are coming out now to, to be able to do it, people have used it like a speculative asset, like you do gold or art or other things of that nature, not so much as a means of commercial exchange. In fact, what we've seen the most is people will hold it as an asset and then they actually want to convert it into a MasterCard, into real money. We have a lot of programs where people can on the fly convert their their Bitcoin or whatever coin they have into something that they can use and spend with a merchant in the way they can have it. And I think that bridging and interfacing has been really, really successful. So the coin-based you know, asset class is one element we've seen from there. I think the stablecoin side of it, where we actually have a digital proxy, whether it's a stablecoin that's that's tied to an underlying financial instrument, or what certain governments like uh, Jamaica and others have been working with have done for for an actual digital currency, that just becomes another means of settlement that we can use. So it's uh, whether it's a registered as dollars in an account or if the object itself is the store of value, it's almost like you'd have. Uh, cashiers or treasurer's checks back from the from from the banks in the day. So we've done a lot of work there on how you could have what we call tokenized deposits, which again, you can use the reach of the network and the access to it and have a different means of transacting. Makes sense. And finally, what advice would you give to someone who's considering a career in fintech? I think it is one of the most amazing dynamic spaces that are out there. And I'm probably a little biased because almost my entire career has been the intersection of finance and technology. But if you think about it, money's just information. And, you know, there's a few, I think, and only a few, like, profoundly universal and interesting sort of data sets that are out there. You have, you know, search, you know, all of human knowledge. And, and now with what we're doing with generative AI, much better ways to interact and, and deal with it. You have geospatial, where things are. You have commerce, what people buy. It's just, it's just such a native part. It's human activity. And so this whole idea of helping people with their assets, helping them plan, helping them have better experiences using it and extending what's there, I think that is, again, just a foundational element and technology will change it profoundly. So who we are as people doesn't change. How we do it will. And that's really where I see a lot of the fintech work happening. And if there's one area out of it I would highlight because it's been such a passion for us at MasterCard is... As I said earlier, using technology to reach and serve people you never could before. So we set a goal around financial inclusion, I think it was in 2014, that the internet of everything must lead to the inclusion of everyone. And we commit ourselves to bring half a billion people into the formal financial system. Because if you think about it, even if we can connect to you technically, if you can't transact you're still cut off. You don't have the educational options, you don't have the entertainment options, you don't have what we enjoy. So we were able to do that. And a few years ago, we, we accomplished that goal of bringing a half billion people in. We doubled down to say we want to bring another half a billion people in. And much of what we're doing is finding new and novel ways to harness technology to bring the value of financial inclusion to people around the world. And the fintech community has been particularly vibrant there. Yeah, super exciting stuff. And I'm excited to see what you do in the future. That was all the questions I had. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you and take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review and give us a follow on social media. We appreciate the support and hope that you'll continue to spread the word to more listeners. If you'd like to keep up with all the content from our fintech community, 
please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and Medium at Wharton Fintech, where you'll be able to find articles, interviews, and much more analyzing all aspects of the fintech industry. As always, thank you to our editor. And until next time, this is your host, Kaylee Costello. Thank you.